0: If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. We finally flip chapters here. <clears throat> we're back in the Sermon on the Mount, um, and we're going to look uh, at verses 1 through 8 and verses 16 through 18. Uh, I think it'll make sense as we go along why, why we've done that. Uh, The part that we've left out is the Lord's Prayer, uh, which I'll begin, uh, Bobby will preach next Sunday, but on Sunday the 25th, I'll begin a three-part sermon on the Lord's Prayer. So uh, I'll I'll talk about it briefly because it does certainly factor into this sermon, but we won't look at it in any detail uh, today. We'll we'll save that for um, breaking it up into three parts uh, next. This is what I've called authentic Christianity. Uh, authentic or authenticity. That's sort of a buzzword in our our culture today, and and mainly it's a good thing. right? We want authentic relationships. You don't want somebody who's fake. Uh, As it relates to the text, we don't want hypocrites. Hypocrites are fake. right? Jesus is going to really nail on that uh, here in this passage. We want authentic. We want to go to a church that's authentic, not a bunch of people who say one thing and live another way. Authenticity is good, and Jesus is going to show us this is what the hypocrites do, and this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to feel about it, and he's really going to return, although in a different way, to something he's hit on on multiple occasions in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the motivation of your heart? I know what you're doing, and I know what you're saying, but what about your heart? What's the motivation? What's the desire of your heart? And Which, in a lot of ways, Westminster, that is, a, that is something between you and the Lord, you can trick everybody, but you can't trick him. He knows your motivations. And so this is trying to get at why do we do what we do, particularly our religious observances, our spiritual disciplines as we talk about it, giving and praying uh, and fasting. Uh, I think the application for fasting is a little broader than just uh, not eating. It's a, how do I discipline myself. Okay? I, think, I think it could be used uh, there as well. With all that in mind, let me read for us Matthew 6. 1 to 8, and then I'll jump over to 16 to 18. "'Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing.' Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord, we ask would you teach us now from your word that we would behold wondrous things from it, that you would send your Holy Spirit to make us ready, to give us ears to hear, hearts ready to cherish all that we hear from you. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land, and one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot, and he took it to the king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart, so as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you're clearly a good steward of the earth, and I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden all of it. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said, Well, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something even better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king and was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed the man. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Indeed, the the gardener wanted the king to have the carrot because he loved him and respected him and wanted to express his love for him. The nobleman overhearing, oh goodness, if you get that for a carrot, what could I get for this horse? So, in reality, he was not giving the king the horse because he loved him and cared about it. He didn't care about the king at all. He cared about himself and wanted to see what wonderful gift he might receive in return. Motives and motivation, they're important, aren't they? They're important in a court of law. If a judge or jury can determine your intent or motivation, and that you thought about this ahead of time before you committed the crime, well, then your punishment is going to be stiffer than it would have otherwise. If you're in a relationship of any kind, you are determining someone's motives. Are they doing this because they love me, or are they doing this just to get something from me? Some of Jesus' harshest critique was to the Pharisees. And how often in the Gospels does he refer to them as hypocrites? On the outside, you look great, like you really do love me and want to, and want to uh, show that in your religious observance, but I know your heart. You don't care anything about me. You care about yourself. You look great and washed on the outside, but inside it's black and dark and dirty. Jesus is drawing this contrast, isn't he? In verse 1, he really sets up the whole passage. Practicing your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Now, Jesus is not conflicting what he said earlier in the sermon when he mentions about being salt and light. He's not saying never do anything in front of other people. He's talking here about your religious devotion. You don't parade, oh, I'm a great prayer. Let me tell you about how often I pray. Let me tell you about all this giving that I do. Let me tell you about all this fasting that I do. That's different than what he's saying when being salt and light. Sometimes we need to be encouraged to share our faith with others. Sometimes we need to be encouraged to be merciful to others, and that's that's good because it's for God's glory. The fundamental warning is, why are you doing what you're doing? The clue lies in the fact that Jesus is speaking to different sins. Salt and light is maybe against our cowardice. What He's speaking of here is against our vanity and our pride. But the ultimate end of either one is the glory of God. And so, Jesus gives three examples. Our motivation in giving to the needy, our motivation in our praying, our motivation in our fasting or our spiritual disciplines. We, I think we could expand it there. And Jesus is not saying if you do these things, he says specifically when you do these things. It's a trio of religious obligation. We ought to be doing each of these. And Jesus paints a picture of the hypocrite's way of religion and the true authentic way of Christianity. So first is Christian giving. Jesus obviously expects His disciples to be givers and to be generous when they do give, and yet He is concerned about motivation. He's already explained, hasn't He, how you can violate the command to not commit adultery or not murder, not by using your hands at all, but by using your minds and your desires. There is a motive to it where you can violate this even though you don't commit anything. Pharisees were hungry for praise. It was their besetting sin. Jesus says of them, you accept glory from another, but you do not seek the glory that comes only from God. John 12, 43, he says, they loved human praise more than they loved the praise of God. And so he pictures this pompous Pharisee there in the opening of our our chapter here, on his way to put money in the special box in the temple. It was it was a brass container that had, kind of had a trumpet uh, as the mouth of it. And so they'd take all these gold coins and they would just slam them in there and they'd clang around, oh dear, I wonder how much he gave. It, it's for show. They want people to know what they're doing. They have a trumpeter, they have this pomp and circumstance. They have an entourage as they sort of, uh, in, in self glorification, walk into the temple to give. Look at what I'm doing. Isn't this awesome? It's a performance. They're not giving for themselves. They're not excited that they can meet the need of the needy. They're excited at what everybody's going to say about them. That's their reward because that's the reward that they seek. This is not a gift in the sight of God, Jesus is saying. This is a purchase for self. The man's not helping the poor. The man's helping himself. Today, we may not have trumpeters and an entourage that follow us as we give, but we can call press conferences. We can get one of those big old checks that says, look how I'm giving $200,000 to this particular cause. Aren't I great for what I'm doing? We let it slip to a friend of this great donation we just gave to this philanthropic organization. Hypocrisy is the word that Jesus uses to characterize this display. The hypocrite appears to be one thing, and yet there's something completely different. You, You know what a hypocrite means. They want you to think this when that's not true at all, actually, this is true. It's like when you go to the movie theaters, you know that the, that the actors and actresses that you're watching, that's not really them. They're playing a part. But we've accepted that convention and we're not fooled by it. Oh, I thought this person was, when I saw their interview, that they would be like the person that they portrayed on screen. You, you don't think that. But this is what the hypocrite does it puts on a mask, plays a part, it's a public performance for their own sake. They have received their reward in full, Jesus says. Well, what's their reward? Exactly what they wanted the applause of other people. They wanted other people to see them and think, wow, they're great. That's what they got, and that's the only reward that they will receive. Jesus says, on the other hand, when you give, don't do that, give secretly. The right hand is normally the, the active hand. Sorry for you left handers out there. This, this is not the, the uh, illustration for you. But normally the right hand is the active hand. So the giving with the right hand is supposed to keep that secret from the left hand. Okay? Well, how in the world is that possible? Well, what does Jesus mean here? He's saying that not only should you not seek the congratulations of others when you give, you should also not seek the congratulations of yourself. Because some, well, you know, I don't, I don't give. For other people to know, but anytime you do something nice for someone or give, you, you give one of these, don't you? Ah, I did great today. Um, I'm so wonderful. Look at how kind and benevolent I am. We are to not be self-conscious when we give. We, we give and then we forget that we have given because it's for the sake of someone else. Giving is a real activity involving real people, and the desire ought to be that the need is met only. That person needs something, I'm going to give to it, and I'm gladdened that the Lord has met that need through me, (laughs) because He's the one who did it anyhow. Let us not have our giving turn into an act of vanity. Now, Jesus is not saying here that it's not wise to budget your giving. That's okay to do. He's not saying that just a minute ago, maybe you wrote a check to the church, and you closed your eyes, and you started writing numbers, and you have no idea how many zeros you put on the check. That, no, that's not, that's not the point. I reached in my wallet. I have no idea how much I, put, I pulled out, but you know we'll find out when we get home. No, no, that's not it. You're not seeking self-congratulations for it. The gift is forgotten as soon as it's given. What is the reward for someone who gives secretly like this? It's the reward that you really wanted. The need was met, and God was glorified. You don't want to take credit for it. You know, don't you, God gave to you, and through you, you gave to someone else. He met the need, and you were the instrument that He used. Christian, our giving is neither to be for, before other people so that we are clapped for and praised. It's not to be before ourselves even that we would congratulate ourselves, but before God who sees it. And his reward is the meeting of the need. And God is indeed gladdened by that. It is more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus says. Jesus is identifying here a spiritual danger. It's the danger of pretending to be something that you're not. It's hypocrisy, and we'll see that in each of the situations here. We're all tempted to do this. If we're honest, we want people to think better of us, don't we? Yes, we do. We're often told the church is full of hypocrites. That's an accusation given to the church, isn't it? Well, there's a couple things we can say back to that. Yes, there are hypocrites in the church, and we have room for one more, so why don't you join us? But is also, is it always fair to say of the church it's full of hypocrites? Well, if our communication to the world is, we got everything under control over here, we're doing great. The reason that God loves us is because we're so great and because we do everything right and because we don't struggle with anything. If that's the message, then we are hypocrites. But that isn't the message we portray. At least I trust that it isn't. I'm not perfect. If you hang around me long enough, you're going to see me sin. And the hope and the joy that I have is not in what I have done, but what God has done for me and in me. No, I I can be hypocritical and I can be a sinner but I want you to know that my hope is not in me, it's in Christ. And if that's the message, we are not hypocrites. We're actually incredibly authentic Christians, aren't we? The reward for the hypocrite is not much. What does it profit a man to gain the applause of the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? That's what Jesus is issuing to us here. It's a warning, isn't it? This is a warning passage to us. This is a time for us to pause and to evaluate our own hearts. As I said in the beginning, I can offer the warning of the text as your pastor, but I I don't know what's in there. I don't know if you're a hypocrite or not. I don't know if you are what you appear to be or you are something that's completely different. Evaluate. And if you find yourself to be hypocritical, there is not, I don't offer you condemnation this morning. Turn to Christ. Ask that he would cleanse you of that unrighteousness, and he will. He will turn you into someone who is more and more authentic. Does your giving bear the marks of authentic generosity? Are you just doing it so that people will regard you highly? We can do this for other reasons, can't we? Why did we come to church this morning? Are we here because we really want to worship the Lord? Are we here because we want people to think we're good people? Are we here because we love Him and we know that we need this time and the Holy Spirit to fill us by His grace? Are we here just so we can pat ourselves on the back? You know, I haven't missed a service in three months. That's great. Why are you here? For the sake of praising the Lord and the benefit of those worshiping around you, or is it for self? Secondly, is Christian praying. Jesus now speaks of another man. He's not ashamed in any way, is he? He's standing on the street corner, similar to this Pharisee in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. His prayers are not really unto God, though he may be using that language. His motivation is to be seen by other people, so that they will say to him, Wow, what a pious man. Did you hear those beautiful words he was saying? He really must love the Lord. For him to be standing out on the street corner there and talking to God and all these wonderful phrases, and that's amazing. It's the same application as to the first man. What he says of the hypocrites sound fine at first. They love to pray. Well, that's a good thing. But unfortunately, it's not prayer that they love or God that they love. It's themselves that they love. Regular prayer, there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is uncovering the true motivation of the Pharisee here. He doesn't want the applause of God. You wonder if he even wants his prayers answered. He wants himself applauded. And that's exactly what he receives. And that's the only reward he is going to receive. Why are we hypocritical, Westminster? Why can we be? Because often we want the regard of other people more than we want the regard of God, don't we? We care more about what others think about us rather than what God thinks about us. How then should we go about praying? Go into your room and close the door, Jesus says in verse 6. We're to close the door so that we don't have any distractions. So that nobody so we out of the corner of our eye we might see someone. Oh, did they hear what I said? Do they they see how I'm concentrating? No, get rid of all that. Go into your room and close the door. This is not speaking to all types of prayer. This is not suggesting that the prayers that I offered up here this morning already are somehow out of bounds. No, there is a there's a place for public prayer. Jesus is speaking, this man is having his private prayer time in public for other people to hear. There's need for secrecy. You know, there really are treasures. I chose that word carefully. There are treasures waiting for you in your private prayer time with the Lord. There's a closeness to Him. There's a comfort and joy and peace. It is a blessed means of grace. The Holy Spirit witnesses to you. He takes your prayers and He presents them to Christ and then to the Father it's something that you need. It is a nourishment to your soul. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't bother yourself with private prayers in public. You need this personal time to draw near to Him as He draws near to you. The Pharisees receive their reward and it's not good. What is our reward in prayer? It's closeness with our Heavenly Father. Something happens in prayer. It does, doesn't it? And, and, as, and as valuable as short prayers are, and I don't want to discourage those, there is tremendous value in going in a room by yourself and praying to the Lord for extended periods of time. Because there comes a point in that time or prayer where you actually really start praying. <laughs> you kind of get past the, the, the pleasantries and the, and, the, and the stuff you normally say, and then you really start pouring your heart out with God. <laughs> It's stuff starts pouring out and you're honest and, and He meets you and He blesses you and He cares for you in unique ways. You know, there are a few areas of our spiritual life where we need more encouragement, I think, than prayer. I, I don't mean to, to, to heap on any condemnation to you this morning. I want to encourage you to pray. It's for your benefit and for the glory of God. The, hip, the hypocrites hurt the church when they pray in the way that they do the blessing is to do it in secret. Jesus also mentions the pagans that pray in our passage. They, he talks about empty phrases or many words. Uh, I think uh, one commentator suggested that, this, that the pagans often used prayers as, if I say it in the right way with the right formula, I get what I want. Uh, we, we know that's not true, and yet maybe, I've thought this in, in, the, in my past as a Christian, well, maybe the reason my prayer didn't get answered is because I didn't ask it right. Maybe I didn't say it with enough emotion. Maybe I didn't really communicate to God how important this was, and therefore I didn't get what I wanted. You know, no is an answer to prayer. It's not the one that we want, but it, it is an answer to the thing that we have asked. And it's not that say it right, say it in the right manner, say it with the right duration of prayer, and then then you'll get it. <laughs> No, there's not a magic formula to the answer of our prayers. That's not the blessing even or the reward that Jesus is speaking of. It's the closeness and the drawing near that is the blessing. In this manner, Jesus says, I want you to pray. And I'm not going to go into the Lord's Prayer, but this was not meant to pray this exact way every time. This is, this is a template for us. This, is a, this keeps your priorities in, in line, kind of prayer. God knows what we need before we ask it. He knows what we're thinking before we even form the words to say it. Our prayers do not change God's mind, and yet they are the instrument that He uses to bless us and to bless others. We can't give Him information that He lacked before. We cannot advise Him. We cannot clarify something for Him. The blessing of prayer is what it does to you. God uses our prayer as the means to bring about the ends that He has decreed from all eternity past. And because God commands us to pray. We're invited to come boldly to the throne of grace. Not to see Christ as our pal in any way, but as the one to whom we unburden ourselves. Ah, there is blessing there. You know, there's a particular phrase in this passage that I don't think I've ever really considered before and I've, I've, I've reflected on it a good bit this week. Jesus says not only that God is your Father, but He is your Father in secret. And I just sort of just whizzed past that. It's, I don't know if it's meant as a title, but it kind of seems that way. He is your Father in secret. When you go into that room by yourself in prayer, you are meeting with your Heavenly Father. Because Jesus tells you to call Him that. Our Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's your Father. He loves you. I don't think it's wrong to think He loves that time with you. He loves it. He enjoys it. He wants that with us. What is the reward for this authentic Christian prayer? Well, I've mentioned it a couple of times. Let me add some emphasis here. It can be the answers to prayers that you sought, but there's a relationship that is increased, that is blessed, and that is strengthened. You present these requests unto the Father, and you leave those things into His good and wise care. It's off your shoulders now. You trust in His goodness and His sovereignty. R.C. Sproul wrote a great children's book some years ago uh, called Peter the Barber. We actually know who Martin Luther's barber was. Can you believe that? Probably shouldn't surprise you that we know that. But Martin Luther's barber was a man named Peter. And one day, Martin Luther was sitting in the barber's... Do we, do we use the term barber anymore, or is it like hairstylist? Man, I'm just trying to think what the updated version of this book might be. Anyway, so Peter the barber is cutting Martin Luther's hair, and he expresses to his pastor, you know what, I feel like I need a better prayer life. Can you help me, pastor? Do you have any suggestions to me on how I ought to pray, or how you can encourage me in prayer. This question meant a lot to Martin Luther, and so he went home, and several weeks later, he published a treatise on prayer. If you read two things from Martin Luther, read The Bondage of the Will, and then read A Simple Way to Pray, which is his response to the question he got from his barber, a man named Peter. And it is exactly what it says that it is a simple way to pray. Here's what he says in the introduction. When we get upon our knees, we are all simple men. And as simple people, we need a simple way to pray. And that's what he delivers. Luther describes mainly his own personal practice of prayer. He takes the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, and he uses them as a template for his own personal prayer. So for the Ten Commandments, he takes each commandment, Lord, will you show me where I violate this? Will you expose this sin? Would you cleanse me of that unrighteousness? And would you help me to follow this in the way that I ought to? He uses the parts of the Apostles' Creed, and he uses the parts of the Lord's Prayer in the same way. It is a, an encouraging instruction to pray, and it's about three ninety nine dollars on Amazon. So, very, very uh, good resource for you. As a total side note, The story of Peter the Barber, if you know it, has an incredibly unhappy ending. Just a few months after Luther writes this treatise on prayer, Peter the Barber murders his son-in-law. His son-in-law had a dream that he was invulnerable to any kind of mortal wound, and so there may have been some alcohol involved. But Peter the Barber says, hey, well, let's try this theory out. So he takes a knife and stabs him in his chest, and he kills him. He goes on trial. He's sentenced for this. He's sentenced to the death penalty, but Martin Luther comes and stands and pleads on his behalf, and he gets it lessened to banishment for the rest of his life. I just thought you might like to know how the end of that story goes. That's a total uh, uh, parenthesis there. Pray. Pray is what we need to do. Pray in a simple way to pray in the way that Luther sets out in that book. Lastly is Christian fasting. Pharisees, in terms of discipline, they had it they fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. They would put on a face that looked tired and sad, like they were struggling through this religious observance, so that people would come up to them and say, oh, are, what's, are you okay? What's wrong? Well, I've been fasting, and boy, it's hard, but, but man, I count it all joy. You know, it's just this saddened look on their face, but they did it because they wanted you to ask, right? They wanted you to, oh, wow, you know, that's really impressive that you're doing all this. They're not doing it for the discipline, to remind them of their need for the Lord, that, that He provides the things that they have and that they need. They did it to be seen by others. The third example of this. Look at how somber, look at how important this is. Jesus is saying, if you, if you want to fast, that's great. Wash your face. <laughs> you know, Act normal right? Don't don't parade this around. That's not why you're doing it anyway. You're doing this in order to draw closer to the Lord and to discipline yourself. Jesus desires this, but do it for Him, not for others. Their outward actions suggest that their whole heart is focused on the Lord, but inwardly, they care nothing for Him. In each of these instances, we see this. Jesus' harshest critiques were to the Pharisees. I've said that already. But why? Look at how they deceived people and the harsh burdens they placed upon them. God is this way. No, He's not that way. He's not a harsh, someone who places burdens on you. He's not harsh in any way. He's loving and He's gracious. Jesus hates this behavior. He doesn't want us to do right things for wrong reasons with wrong motivations. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, Jesus says. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. They were distorting the truth. They were graceless people, and yet they were revered in their church. They seemed to do the right things, and yet God knew their heart. Have you ever known someone like that? truly graceless person. They did good things, but it was for the wrong reasons. Pity them. Pity them. They need the grace of Christ to come in and show them that's not how God the Father is at all. He's he's wonderful and caring and loving, and He wants us to see these religious observances are for your benefit and for the glory of God, not so that you would receive the applause of others, this view of God is, is difficult and harsh. That's not the biblical God at all. He's patient and loving and kind. Yes, He is holy, and we tremble before Him in His majesty. Yeah, that is absolutely true. He's not someone we come, into, come before in any manner that we want to, but what we find Him to be in Christ is loving and caring and good. The hypocrite looks for a ward for himself. The authentic Christian, the disciple of Christ looks for the reward that helps others, that draws them closer to God and brings glory to Him. I don't know how many of you have ever read the book of Amos. It's a bit of a trudge. It's a lot of judgment language. It's a lot of, this is how Israel has acted and here's what God is going to do unless they turn their hearts unto Him. In a bit of a climactic moment for that particular judgment language, Here's what God says to His people in Amos chapter 5. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. In the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream." Did you hear closely what is being said there? What are they doing? They're doing everything right, and God says He hates it. They're doing the religious observances. They're doing the sacrifices. They're playing the worship songs. Everything, outwardly speaking, is right in line, and God says, I hate it when you do that. I hate it, and I don't regard it in any way. Why? Because He knows their hearts. They're doing it thinking, I'll do this, and in exchange, God's going to give me all these wonderful things. Their their heart does not love Him. Their heart regards nothing for them. The reward they want is something they think they've earned, and it's not the loving care of Christ. Let us heed the warning. Let us heed this warning, Westminster. Let us look and fall on our knees again before God and say, Lord, be merciful to me. I do this sometimes. I do. I can be hypocritical, I can seek the applause of man more than I seek your applause, O Lord. Sometimes I do religious observances so that I can just feel better about myself, and not because I really love and care for you, and return unto him, as our call to confession of sin this morning told us to. What is the right posture? It's the posture of the tax collector and the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee violates all three of the parts of our passage in that story. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. I fast, I tithe all that I get, and I'm praying here on the street corner. (laughs) He is doing the very thing Jesus says don't do. He's giving his personal prayers on the street corner for everybody to see. And this tax collector, keep in mind, who has done many wrong things in his life. We're not letting him off the hook for what he's done. He says what? He doesn't even look unto God. He says in the quietness of his own heart, have mercy on me a sinner. Have mercy on me, O Lord. And what does Jesus say? The man who looks great on the outside, he is not justified before the Lord. The one who cries out knowing he's a debtor to mercy alone, he is the one who's justified. Let us go and do likewise. The takeaway is not to get rid of your religious observances. The takeaway is not to, well, it doesn't matter how you live. The takeaway is do these things from a posture of, Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you can meet the need of that person in and through me. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace, because I am a sinner and I need you. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came as my substitute and did the things that I needed desperately on my behalf and our behalf and bring all the glory unto him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for these passages of Scripture, Lord, that warn us, that call us to look inwardly upon our heart. Lord, would you cleanse us by your grace, to help us to walk in your ways, to help us to do this out of a genuine love for you and for others, and that you would receive all the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? And remain standing as we sing the doxology together. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you for listening. For the Sermon Archive, go to wpcjcorg forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV text may not be quoted in any publication, made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. The ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.